What's up, guys? This is Ryan. I am here with Mark and Nick. Hey. Hey. And we are Bible Dingers. So, what's interesting about this episode is that we recorded it probably over a year ago at this point. Um, Almost a year. Yeah. It was at the start of COVID. Yeah. Because um, we recorded this on WebEx. That's right. We were all um, remote. Yeah, we and we weren't really sure how to handle uh, interviews and recording and stuff like that at that point. So we did it on WebEx, which is like what I use for work meetings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I we recorded it so long ago, knowing that it wasn't going to air until now, just because this is such a special guest that we couldn't pass up on scheduling him and locking down a date and time. And so we just locked it down knowing that it wouldn't be released for a very long time. So today is finally the day where we are releasing our interview with Dr. Dr. Gary Habermas. Um, So if you don't know who he is, you should. Um, I learned about him from reading Lee Strobel's very popular book, A Case for Christ, Gary Habermas. Habermas. I, I've always said Habermas, but it's Habermas. Um, mm. He was one of the main contributors to that. And uh, he's also, I guess, caricatured in the Case for Christ movie. Uh, oh, okay. as a, I never saw never yeah. saw that, never read the book. Yeah, so uh, he, is, he is a huge voice in apologetics when it comes to defending the resurrection of Jesus. He's one of the foremost voices uh, in this group. If He's probably the the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so let us tell you a little bit about him. He has a PhD from Michigan State University in the area of history and philosophy of religion. He got his master's before that from the University of Detroit. He's a Detroit man in philosophical theology and Christian thought. And before that, he went to William Tyndale College, where he majored in social sciences, Christian education, and Bible. He minored in philosophy, Greek, English, and speech. Uh, Dr. Habermas works at Liberty, Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary and Graduate School. Uh, he is the department chair of philosophy and theology. Yeah. Uh, the first time I heard of Gary Habermas was on uh, Capturing Christianity. Oh, really? So uh, Dr. Habermas wrote 40 books. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, whether that's he was the author, the co-author, or the editor. And some of those works include Evidence for the Historical Jesus, 2015, The Resurrection of Jesus Handbook, 2014, and Philosophy of History, Miracles, and the Resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, and he also wrote over a hundred articles and reviews published in journals and magazines. And from 1996 all the way to present, he's a visiting or adjunct professor teaching over 40 courses at 15 different graduate schools and seminaries. And he also has done approximately, probably more knowing this guy, 2000 lectures at about a hundred universities, colleges, seminaries, and churches in the United States and all around the world. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yes, it 2, is. Two thousand lectures. That's a lot of talking. That's tiring, yeah. Yeah. 
And and yet one of these is on our show today. That's it. We're number 2001. And one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, very special guest, like I said, we recorded a long time ago because it was so important for us to get him on the show. We hope that you guys enjoy. Bible diggers. Things are changing. The way people receive information, it's really changing. You know, it's like a supply chain. You know, someone, like you're seeing in the news, someone's got to kill the pig. Someone's got to get the pig to market. So someone's got to process it. Someone's got to put it in the store. We're starting to get the supply chain straightened out. And the guys who are doing the programs are talking to the guys who do the research. And the guys who didn't have the research before now have the research and they know how to use it. But some of these guys, you know, it took them 30 years to dig it out. And, um... You know, like this minimal facts argument. I don't know if that's what we're talking about today or not, but this thing I do on the resurrection, I started doing it when I did my dissert- my PhD dissertation in 1975. So it's wow. taken all that time to hone this thing. And the last time I heard was sitting there at one of these conferences while somebody gave the argument, quote, unquote, my argument, it was excellent. It, he did an excellent job. But so we can research it and put it out there and they pick it up and use it, and I'm tickled. I think that's, I was going to tell you, Bertuzzi, when he did the one in, in October, he put it up, and within three weeks, it had like 150,000 hits. I could never have done that. I couldn't tape myself and just say, here I am, come listen to me. You know, <laughs> it's dumb. So and I was just on with the pastor just minutes ago before you guys called, so... Anyway, guys, sorry to take up your time there. I didn't mean to do all that. I'm just saying what you're talking about and, and the guys that are doing what you guys are doing are getting to be the most popular guys, and uh, so be it. I'm just glad the material's out there and uh, it can be passed on. I tell my Ph.D. students there's nothing like ministry, and uh, that's what we're doing. So one quick story. Jim Wallace is a, is a really good friend of mine, and the first time I met him, it was in another one of those big conferences. It was in a conference that had like 50 speakers and 2,000 people there. And I'd never met him. And he was speaking on the resurrection. And I was doing a plenary session, you know, for everybody on the resurrection. He was doing a breakout. And I saw him down in front of this huge auditorium that holds 6,000 people. And I walked down to the front of it, and I stood next to him. And we never ta- said a word to each other. I'd never met him. He's going up to do the resurrection. I put my arm around him sideways, you know, in the pew, and I whispered in his ear. I said, this better be good. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, not one minute later, he was walking up the stairs. He goes, oh, my gosh, guess what someone just told me in my ear, you know, and that's how he started his message. So he told me, uh, like I said a number of times, he thinks that the minimal facts argument is the best way to make sense of the detective approach only, you know, to apply to the resurrection. So I'm thinking that's really cool because on top of the guys who are doing the research being popularized by the guys who are doing the media, you've got guys who are coming in from different fields like archaeology, New Testament, or in his case, detective stuff, and they're bringing their own tools to it. So 
Uh, apologetics is not what it was when I was growing up. We've gotten way more sophisticated, and I'm just just very thankful. And it's no wonder nobody can stand us in this country because we've we've got the best evidences, and they don't want to hear them. That's true. So, that is true. Well, speaking of evidences, resurrection is kind of a huge claim. Do we do we actually have evidence that Jesus died and rose again? Well, the, the way I would do it is what, what I call the minimal facts argument. I, I use different names. Instead of minimal facts, sometimes I'll say, if this makes more sense to people, I'll say it's the lowest common denominator method uh, or something like that. And what I mean is you can take a very small number of facts that have two characteristics, and I'll tell people I won't use any data where the fact is not multiply evidenced by a bunch of other facts. I mean, seriously, the facts I use will be evidenced in some cases by 20 to 30 other arguments each for that fact. And then secondly, it's not as important, but it's very, but it's still, it's down the line a little bit, but it's still the second rule, is because these facts are so powerful, uh, the vast majority of scholars who study this material. Now, the only thing they have to be is a specialist. They can't have a PhD in English. Nothing wrong with that, but they've got to be in the area. So if, they, if their field is New Testament, theology, philosophy, history, archaeology, something that has uh, relig- world religions, something that has a bearing where they've, where they've studied the actual data professionally, they're going to agree with these facts because they're, they're agreed to Probably, and I've, I'm, I'm the guy that's done the head count on scholars from 1975 to date. It's, these facts are going to be agreed to by probably 90-something percent of the scholars who sift through the data. So when you get facts that could jump through those two hoops, number one, more importantly, each fact is attested by many, many other facts, sometimes more than one or two dozen. Secondly, because the facts are so good, critics allow them. There are the data I will use. Um, I've used as few as three. I've used as many as eight. But, I mean, even eight's not a lot. Currently, I use uh, six. And then I add a seventh one, which is not really a minimal fact, but I call it six plus one. Uh, It's the empty tomb because the evidence for the empty tomb, there's only over 20 evidences for the empty tomb, but critics are not going to be 90-something percentile uh, in agreement, they'll be about 75%. And that's good, but it's not 95 So I'll use six facts plus the empty tomb. And I think what those facts will do is that they will refute natural what-if kind of scenarios. And on the other hand, they'll give us the best evidences that something happened to Jesus after he died. Something happened that allowed him to walk around and talk and be seen by people. That sounds yeah. That sounds perfect. Can you can you give us a rundown of those six facts? Six sure. facts plus one. Sure. If I used only the six, which I call the minimal facts, that they're the minimal facts proper. Uh, Jesus died by crucifixion, and of course that's not the resurrection. But if you have to have a dead man before you can have a raised man. So uh, he died by crucifixion. Secondly, the most important one is that the disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. And I mean the most ardent critics 
uh, atheist scholars like Garrett Ludeman and uh, Bart Ehrman or the former skeptic of the last generation who was more skeptical than both of them, Rudolf Boltmann, they'll, they'll all concede that, uh, that the disciples thought they saw the risen Jesus. Thirdly, and this is the fact that has really changed in the last decade or two. This was proclaimed in the early church. The resurrection teaching was proclaimed in the early church about one year after the resurrection. Now, a Christian might say, well, yeah, all you got to do is read the book of Acts, but how do we know that Acts is saying it truly? Yeah, that's not what I mean. I mean we have reports that go back, well, Bart Ehrman, the atheist, he says these reports date from one to two years after the cross. Garrett Ludeman, an atheist to a Testament scholar, says three years maximum. So they go back to the earliest church and the proclamation concerns the resurrection. That's three, very, very early. Four, they turned the world upside down, believing in those facts alone, and they were transformed to the point of being willing to die. So somebody might say, well, how do you know what they were willing? You got to, what, are you a mind reader? Go, no, I don't have to read minds. I only have to watch where their feet are going, because if the Apostle Paul is going to have all these things done to him, you know, whipped 40 minus 1 a bunch of times, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked three times, if you're going to keep putting yourself in danger where those things can happen, you've got to be pretty sold out your message, and you're transformed by it. Well, Paul said this is the number one message in the world, and no other message counts if this one's not true. So he specifically died, and later we do have first century data for his martyrdom. He specifically died for the proclamation of the resurrection. So that's four so far. Crucifixion, real experiences, proclaimed early, and transformed lives. And then two skeptics, former skeptics, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, ex-Saul uh, of Tarsus, became believers because they thought they saw the risen Jesus. And then I do the plus one because the empty tomb, as I said, only has about 75% support from scholars. Uh, but there's over 20 evidences for the empty tomb. And by the way, when I say there's over 20 evidences, 30 over 30 for the evidence that the disciples thought they saw the risen Jesus. When I say there's evidences, what I don't mean is I'll give you 20 verses or I'll give you, you know, 30 verses for the other one. What I mean is I'm going to give, I'm going to give reasons the way critics count reasons. I'm going to count historical tests that give reasons. And I'll use 06 plus empty tomb. And my bottom line is, those seven facts, six minimal plus one extra, indicate the fact that Jesus was seen alive after his crucifixion is by far the best explanation for what we know. So I kind of wanted to, to dive a little deeper on your first point, which if I remember correctly was that Jesus died on the cross, right? Correct. Correct. That's correct. Crucifixion. Yep. How do how do we know that he actually died on the cross? Well, he have I mean, just, you're starting. Couldn't he have just ahead. have faked it by? Couldn't he have just faked it by you know just passing out and then walking out of the tomb later or something like that? Yeah. Now you can you can I, you know I I tell my PhD students you can uh, put this in some form that sounds very convincing. You could say, oh well, pardon me, but where did the centurion get his? MD, did he go to Johns Hopkins? 
perchance? How does he know what a dead guy is? And where did he plug the EEG and the EKG? Did he put them in the rock out there on the mountainside? You know, and and so right away it's like, whoa, well, how would a Roman know? Just because you're not moving? Well, you can fake. You can be in a coma. You can um, – and I would say several things here. First of all, death by crucifixion. There are different medical explanations for what happens to a person with a crucified, but by far the most common – so common that it is often, you could argue that more, more medical doctors take, who do have MDs from schools like Johns Hopkins, um, they argue that, that for this one view of death, which supersedes all, there's more for this one than there's for all the other ones put together. And the view is that death by crucifixion essentially causes asphyxiation. Uh, and when you hang in the low position on the cross and the weight of your body pulls down on the intercostal pectoral, pectoral and deltoid muscles, same muscles you work on in the gym, they, it pulls down on those muscles and they constrict the lungs. So if you are in the up position, you can shout and curse and say what you want to to the people like the two men on each side of Jesus. You can say what you want. And, but, but if you're going to – also, if you're going to breathe, you've got to push up. But if you slump back down, both because of gravity and because of the pain, you slump back down, you begin asphyxiating. Believe it or not, people have done experiments with this with male volunteers, and they didn't use nails, which by far in the ancient literature, nails are, ropes are almost never mentioned. Uh, nails is how they did it. Nails don't kill anybody, but it makes it you know worse. Um, so when you slump back down in a low position, you begin asphyxiating. And in one experiment, the, the men, the male volunteers, this was in um, 20th century Western Germany after World War II, so it's pretty recent. Um, the, the male volunteers lapsed in unconsciousness in a maximum of 12 minutes. So you say, well, now we've got a problem because Jesus was on the cross for six hours, right? Okay, right, okay, good. And, uh, yeah, but if it's over in 12 minutes... How come Pilate was surprised he was dead? Well, something's missing here. And the volunteers, they were just hanging there. But on the cross, your feet are nailed um, or tied, and you can't move them. And you can push up. And you can live as long as you can push up. But we all know after a while, if your life depends on your ability to do pull-ups, you're not going to be alive very long. And, and now that makes sense. Why did they come by him and break ankles? We, are, we have other crucifixion victims whose bones have been discovered, two or three now we're up to, where their ankles were, were broken so that they couldn't push up. And that just argues for, for asphyxiation. So all of that, just to say one thing, the centurion did not have to have an MD from Johns Hopkins. If you were hanging low on the cross, and it goes over six hours, so if you're hanging low on the cross for, let's say, a half hour, well, you're not faking. Well, maybe you're in a coma. It's irrelevant. That's like saying your head's going to be underwater, but don't look. He's just in a coma. Well, you know, that won't <laughs> last very long. Um, same right. thing with crucifixion. Okay, next, in John, he's, the, the dead body is stabbed with the spirit to make sure he's dead, kind of a not on my watch. Uh, you're not getting away. Well, it's only in John, but we have references in ancient Greco-Roman uh, reports of 
things being done to people on the cross to make sure they don't get down alive. And stabbing the body is one of the things that's reported. Another one, the guy's skull was crushed. They did things in addition to crucifixion to make sure you won't get down. So the spear wound is huge. Now, Jesus' ankles weren't broken, but that was the third thing. If they smashed the ankles, it's so you don't get down off the cross alive. But here's the big one. If, let's just say, I don't care the reason. Jesus lied. He faked. He was in a coma. Don't care. If he comes out of that tomb three days later, he's walked on nails, uh, nailed feet, He's been stabbed. He's been beaten severely, which is usually what they did for crucifixion. He's going to walk how far? We don't know. A few blocks, maybe a quarter mile. I don't know, um, to where the disciples are. And he's going to knock on the door. And when they open the door, his, his cuts have been opened. He's bled through his clothes. He hasn't washed his hair. Um, he's pale, uh, ready to pass out. We used to have a saying in the 60s. They'd say, man, you look like death warmed over. And that's how Jesus would have looked. Now, here's the problem with this. David Strauss, a very well-known critic from the 19th century Germany, who himself was so skeptical he rejected God and the afterlife before he died. David Strauss said, he said, the problem with the swoon theory, the problem with saying Jesus didn't die, is that you have a living Jesus, but you don't have a resurrected Jesus. And if Jesus wasn't believed to be resurrected, you would not have Christianity. So, if you follow the argument, according to Strauss, a faking death Jesus destroys Christianity. You can't get Christianity from it, because you don't get the resurrection. So that today, 150 years later, that's the main reason why scholars reject the swoon theories, because of David Strauss's critique. The whole thing, forget all the medicine, the whole thing backfires. So there's several reasons for you. Okay, great. Um, now, the second point of your uh, minimal facts was about how the disciples really believed that they saw the resurrected Christ, right? Correct. Okay, so what's stopping someone from saying that the disciples just colluded together to make up this story? Well, the problem with any kind of falsehood-type story, whether it's disciples stole the body, they lied, let's make a really altruistic. They wanted to help people around the world and feed them and, and uh, do, you know, fulfill Jesus' ethic of helping others, uh, the Good Samaritan, and so on. So let's just not say something crass like they lied. Let's just say they banded together and said, what better thing can we do? We buried our master. What better thing can we do than to proclaim his message? And they go, yeah, that's it. And they did it. One small problem on the side is what, why wouldn't uh, you know, a good number of them kind of beg off the issue within a year. I mean, they've got families, uh, tax collecting, they've got a fishing business. Who's taking care of the wife and kids at home? Remember, Peter goes back to his house for a little while in the Gospels. Uh, the, the guys go fishing in John 21. Um, how, how is that going to make them committed? But here's the big thing. Whenever you implicate the disciples that they had ulterior motives and they did something that, which is not, they did something that doesn't exactly agree with what their mouth was teaching, i.e., you should become a Christian because Jesus is raised from the dead. The problem is the guys who are perpetrating the fraud are the same guys whose lives are transformed, who spend the rest of their lives 
that that was one of the points. That's one of the uh, minimal facts is the transformation to the point of being willing to die. And further, what do you do with James, the brother of Jesus, from several references in the New Testament, Mark 3, Mark 6, uh, John 7, uh, John, James was not a believer when Jesus was on the cross, and that makes the most sense of, of why John gives, uh, why Jesus gives his mother to John instead of to a brother who apparently wasn't even there. But, but uh, you're talking about the disciples being the ones who are committed, not James. But all of a sudden, James is on board, and he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, basically, you know, a Ph.D. in Old Testament, and he, he's going around trying to kill Christians, so much so that when he's on the way to, Dam- to Damascus, uh, Ananias, the guy who came to see him, and he didn't want to go see him because this is the guy that's tearing the church up. Well, it's amazing because that, that report was in Damascus. This guy's the guy tearing the church up, but it concerned Jerusalem a long way away. So people knew Paul's reputation. How come James and Paul are on board? I mean, what are the disciples going to say? Psst, 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 Paul, come over here. Don't, don't kill us. Don't kill us. Just share us out. We want you to join us and feed the masses. We're really serious about this. We want to change your life. And Paul says, uh, you're missing something. My degree is in Old Testament, and I'm here to support the God of Israel. I mean, the theory just breaks down at a bunch of points. James, Paul, why they were stayed committed, why were they willing to die? But you can't implicate their, their ethics, because that's the main point. And I can tell you guys that, that in history of, of uh, theories on the resurrection, virtually no scholar has implicated the disciples in one of those fraud views for over 200 years. That tells you there's something wrong with the theory. If it's not their best yeah, theory, right. then it's not a very good theory. Well, what if, what if we give them the fact that they have transformed lives and yeah. that they had good intentions? What if they're just crazy people that were, that were just like hallucinating that Jesus came back from the dead? Okay, now those are two different theories, but if they're crazy people, you'd have to have, or get, get Judas out of there, but there's still 12 because uh, Matthias takes his place, and there's still 13 James, there's still 14 Paul. There's still Barnabas and Timothy and the whole crew. You're going to have to have about 15 or 20 very committed crazy people. So the crazy people doesn't equal, I'm leaving my business, I'm trying to save the world, I'm trying to feed you. You know, the, the crazy thesis, I don't know anybody who's ever taken that theory. I'm not, not one of these scholars that I'm talking about who are specialized. Hallucinating is more common. But the problem with hallucination, there's many problems with hallucination. I mean, I asked my grad students, is hallucination an empty tomb view or a closed tomb view? And they go, well, hallucination is a closed tomb view. What does that mean? Well, it means if you roll the stone back, you're going to find the body in the tomb. Uh, right, so they rolled the stone back, or the angels did, and, and what did they find? Nothing. What does that mean? Something happened to the body. So what we're talking about, I mean, uh, empty tomb is a huge objection to hallucination. But the biggest objection to hallucination, um, as far, and again, we're, we're employing the, the physicians at this point. Um, I've got uh, two close buddies who've done research. One's a medical doctor. The other one's a clinical psychologist who works in a hospital. One of them checked the records back, I don't know, I think it was like 25-ish years, and the other one checked records from about the same time, and they both ask, in the medical field and in the psych field, 
are there any documented cases of group hallucinations? Now, people can give you cases of things where groups saw things, but the crazy thing is when you go back and check, they're not hallucinations. So maybe something really weird. I mean, for example, if 10 hunters said they saw Bigfoot, you could say, well, there's no such thing as Bigfoot. But you might do a story and, and say, all right, the conclusion of our story is 10 hunters saw a big bear that raised up on its hind legs. Um, or a really big man who had a winter coat on. You know, this is, this is wintertime, you're hunting. Uh, in other words, they're not hallucinating. Do you remember, by definition, hallucination is something where there's no corresponding external referent. That means you're not seeing anything. You're seeing an absence of something. That's an illusion is when you see a, 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 an airplane, you think it's a flying saucer. That's not an hallucination. That's an illusion. You take it to be something else. The, the water on the road when you're going down the highway in the summertime. Um, other things are going on there. But to have a true hallucination where there's no corresponding factor, you're looking at space, and 10 people claim to see the same event. And, and then here's the problem. It doesn't just happen once. I, I tell my grad students, again, you're not talking about hallucination theory. You're talking about hallucination, 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 hallucination theory. Because it kept happening. That happened if you believe the New Testament accounts. And we could use, we could stay with those accounts only that the critics accept. We could do those alone. But if you just cite the New Testament as sources, you got the disciples without Thomas, the disciples with Thomas, the women at the tomb, which are several. It says they held him by the feet. Mary at the tomb alone holds Jesus and doesn't let him go. You've got the two men on the way to Emmaus, Paul and his, and his uh, colleagues. You've got several groups. So to say that, yeah, this has only happened like one or two times in history, but to say you have it six times, just picking a number, for the appearance of Jesus, it just, every one of those moves makes hallucination more and more ludicrous. So especially since with my two researchers, nobody's found a single case in the scientific literature. Gotcha. That, that's, that's really awesome. Thank you for the answer. You know, as Christians, the... The resurrection confirms everything we believe, that Jesus is God. And if we give exactly. it to him, let's just say, let's just say that the apostles are right, right? And, and, and let, let's say the whole world acknowledges, all right, the apostles are right. Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, I was sharing the right. gospel with a Muslim the other day, and he said, okay, so let's just agree. You know, we respect the scriptures, and maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. But does that mean that he's God? I mean, does the resurrection, why does the resurrection matter? Uh, how would you respond yeah, good, to that Muslim, and what would you say to him? First of all, great question, because there's, as many people have pointed out, um, if, you go, if you go and find an empty tomb, you're, you're with the women on Sunday morning, and you find an empty tomb, that's not necessarily a miracle. It could have been caused by a miracle, but not necessarily. Um, it could be a grave robber. It could be somebody else. Could be Joseph came and thought better of it. His family got on his case and said, don't put a man killed as a criminal in our family tomb. So he moves him to a private one and then he doesn't tell anybody because he doesn't want to upset the church. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of things, but those don't require a miracle. In order to get a miracle, by definition, even David Hume's definition, the famous skeptic, you have to have an event plus a connective to the person of God. You have to say, 
not that something crazy happened, but that the God of the universe raised this man. That's what makes it a miracle if God's involved. And for your friend to whom you were talking, I would say that the uh, the key there is that you have to know, it's like Lewis's Lord, Light, or Lunatic argument. Uh, you'd have to know, I think, what makes what you have to use to complete Lewis's argument is Jesus had to have called himself Lord. If you don't know he called himself Lord, then he has a much lower bar to, to jump over. Um, so now you have to go back to the New Testament text. I do the same thing. I use a minimal facts argument to show that using the text that critics allow, and I would argue that Jesus called himself the Son of God and the Son of Man. And by the way, Son of Man doesn't mean uh, a man with a human nature. Uh, it is used that way in Scripture sometimes, but it's also used in this way of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is sent by the Ancient of Days to earth. And even critics in the literature call that Son of Man in Daniel 7, they call him a pre-existing divine figure. Um, so we have to know if, what Jesus meant by Son of God. I'm mean, Son of Man. And you know, his listeners, like at the, his, his trial, the Son of Man title seemed to upset them more than the Son of God title did. That's interesting. But, but what a lot of New Testament scholars say is the most, the most incredible thing that comes from Jesus' teaching is not even um, Son of God or Son of Man, as high as those are. Christ, the title Christ has some impact here, too. But the big thing is when Jesus claimed in Mark 14, which I think is the best text on his deity, Mark 14, 61 to 64. And I'm treating this critically. I'm not just quoting a verse. I'm co- I'm, I am, I've studied the way the critics go after this passage, and so you've got to take the text, shave down the way they do it, and then see if you still have enough. It's a minimal facts argument. But Jesus said, they said, are you the Christ? The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he says, ego on me. Well, he doesn't say, he, he's speaking Aramaic, but it's in Greek. But ego on me, I am. And he says, henceforth you'll see the Son of Man. He changed the Son of God question to a Son of Man answer. And he says he's going to be coming on the clouds. Coming on the clouds in the Old Testament, it's a phrase only applied to God. And then he said the most bombastic thing of all. He said, and the Son of Man who comes on the clouds. He's going to be seated on God's right hand. Most scholars believe that that was the most blasphemous thing there in that string of four things. Uh, Yes, Son of God. Yes, Son of Man coming on the clouds. Seat on the right hand of God. Because if you're seated, co-seated with him on his throne, that means you're a co-regent. That means you shared the throne. That is a claim to be deity. And by the way, with the Son of Man, there are first century, first century non-Christian Jewish teachings on the Son of Man where he is worshipped and shares God's throne. So Jesus kind of, kind of morphed into a common way of speaking about this uh, messianic figure. So if he's claiming those things, including the most blasphemous thing of of sharing God's throne. The New Testament says it over and over again. He's on the right hand of God. Remember Stephen before he, when he's dying, um, just before they kill him. Uh, he sees Jesus on God's right hand. If Jesus made all those claims, here's the question you have to answer. Here's what I'd ask your friend if you're witnessing to him. 
if the God of the universe exists, and that friend, of course, is going to concede that, um, God exists, and Jesus is the only prophetic-type figure in history to, be, to have a serious claim to have been raised from the dead, and dead men don't do much, I think these are all pretty solid claims, if dead men don't do much, who acted on Jesus to raise him from the dead? Who acted on him? Now, Jesus said over and over again, they said, give us a sign. And twice he says, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah's three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, I'll be, uh, you know, I'm going to, Jonah emerge from the fish. Uh, I'm going to emerge, you know, from the earth. And so he said, that's a sign. All right. If his father's going to work on his dead body, why is the father confirming heresy? And of all the unique things Jesus did, I think the two most heretical claims are that I can share my father's throne, I am deity. And number two, every prophet says, I'm bringing you the words of life. But Jesus made what philosophers would call an ontological claim. Jesus said, I am the words of life. You go, well, that's in the Gospel of John. No, you're, you're thinking I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He does it in the Synoptic Gospels, too, where he said, take up your cross and follow me. I am the path to eternal life. What you do with me determines your status for eternity. Now, those two are very radical claims. Why is the Father raising him from the dead if Judaism alone is true or some other religion is true? If Jesus made those claims, the the resurrection has to imply or teach affirmation of those teachings, especially at the heart of them, or he's a heretic. And I think when you start going down the list and seeing who Jesus must be from his claims, critics aren't going to like that view. I think that goes a long way toward explaining why Christians are increasingly... Uh, repelled in society today because people don't like the claims they're making. But of course, Christians would just say, I didn't make the claims up. If you can't explain away the resurrection, you tell me what else you're going to want to do with this. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, you noted uh, how the resurrection is miraculous and it had to be from God. And a lot of people can't jive like that. I, I feel like that a lot of people don't accept miraculous things to have to have occurred and that it just doesn't mesh with the science and i yep. know that you're primarily a historian but i wanted to ask a lot a lot of the arguments are historical evidences but can we really just use historical data to prove something that a lot of people would say is just impossible scientifically yep well philosophically my trainings well my PhD's history and philosophy of religion, but half of my training is in philosophy. And I would claim, for anybody for whom this makes sense, I would say I'm an empiricist. Uh, now, now, I'm not a pure empiricist. I think reason is, is just as important as your sense experience. But if I don't have sense experience for what I claim, if I don't have sense data, and remember, sense data is the heart of the sciences. So if I don't have sense data, um, I know I'm going to fall prey to that critique. In fact, I would say, I'm, I'm often asked, what is the number one critique you hear of the resurrection today? And it's not 
the ones we've been talking about. It's not the disciples were faking, they lied, they couldn't help themselves, Jesus swooned, they saw hallucinations. They're, they're saying just what you say. Um, according to Occam's razor, here's the objection, according to Occam's razor, the simplest hypothesis and all those things are equal, the simplest hypothesis is probably true. My hypothesis that the world is materialistic and that's all there is is simpler than yours because you have two worlds. You have the world in which Jesus walked and talked and the world from which he was acted upon by his father and to which he returned. So you have two worlds. What are you going to do with that? And how in the world can you back up your claim that you have empirical data? All right. This inner discussion is where I would go time out. Let's, you want to switch tracks. Let's switch tracks. Let's go to near-death experiences. Anybody who reads my stuff, you know that next to the resurrection, near-death experiences are probably the topic I've done the most work on, and I've been doing that on this topic for almost 40 years. There are over, I just had a debate on this topic with a guy with three doctor's degrees. I say just, it was published in 2016, uh, I think it was 2016, um, who was arguing there are no evidential cases. But I cataloged over 300 evidential cases where people in a state where, as far as we can measure, they have no heart or brain activity, and yet they report something that, it, let's just say they're in a windowless room, and the uh, 911 emergency team is there, and they report what happened out in the parking lot, they, re they report what happened on the 10th floor of the hotel above them. I'm just making up possibilities. Uh, they reported what right. happened to their home, and they lived three miles away. And somebody can back these things up, but we also have a police, re I mean, we also have a, uh, yeah, uh, like a medical report. We know when you went down and when you were, when you were brought to, and we know what you're claiming to have seen, like a car accident from, you know, six blocks away, and we have a police report. Um, there are over 300 evidential cases that argue today like never before. People are starting to say the percentage of people who believe in an afterlife is going up, 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 and one of the main reasons is because near-death experiences, due to science, they're being discovered past the point, as far as we know, past the point of no brain activity and no heart activity in the same person. If neither one is working, the fact that you reported something that's highly evidential that can be verified is extremely unlikely. And when you have 300 cases, uh, maybe of which 20 or 30 of them are highly evidential, um, you've got really good evidence for another world. And you say, well, what kind of other world? Well, even, even the simplest kind. We have them in our family. You guys probably have them in your families. So they're very common. A latest medical study of NDEs claimed that in America alone, uh, 9 to 21 million Americans have had near-death experiences. Now, that's enough people who have experience. You say, well, they were hallucinating. Okay, great. Let's take a look at that. But even the, the barest cases, uh, a mother giving birth to a child is up above her body, and they're wa she's watching them deliver the baby, and she's 15 feet up in the air. And let's say she gets a flat reading on her EKG. <clears throat> her heart doesn't seem to be working. And the doctors start talking real fast. Do this, do that. Give her a shot of this. Do that. Stand back. We're going to put the, you know, the electric shock and so on. Well, the woman is up above her body, and you can get these. These cases are dozens and dozens of these, and she's going, "I'm okay. I'm all right. Can't you see me? I'm fine." And no one's looking her way. Nobody can hear her. She's in another world. No, I'm watching my body. Yeah, well, they can't hear you. They don't know you're up there. What are you doing up there anyway? You're not on a ladder. Um, 
so the de- near-death experiences require another reality and and call it afterlife, whatever you want. Now, I would say, let's break away. Let's Let's just talk about afterlife. And if we already know there's an afterlife, the most incredible thing about the resurrection is it taps right into this other field that we see. If there's an afterlife, it's not so strange that Jesus tells you he was there and he just came back from because it's like Jesus is like a near-death experience, only his was a real death experience from our earlier discussion. We know he died. But he claims to have come back from that world. And and now we have empirical evidence. Now, you can sit there, anybody can, and they can say, I don't believe in that world. That's great. But why don't you disprove it? Don't disbelieve it. Disprove it. Tell me why these evidential NDEs don't occur. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guarantee you, NDEs are in the category for me with intelligent design cases that you can bring so many evidences to the forefront that, you know, you're, you're not going to be explained away. Hugh Ross, by the way, uh, you know, a very well-known astrophysicist, he tells me that in the last three years, the guy reads about everything there is out there. He told me in the last three years the intelligent design literature has been so persuasive that he has not read a single uh, unbelieving scientist who hasn't become a deist or at least concede the possibility of deism. In other words, they've just decided they're they're at least open to there being another world. And if you have a a possible God and a possible afterlife, and then a man with all the evidence who said, I came from that world with a God and an afterlife, I think we should start listening. It does seem pretty convincing. And yeah, we did have Dr. Ross on the show about a year ago. And right. uh, it does seem like if if God can create this amazing universe, the resurrection almost seems like a small miracle <laughs> compared to... Yeah, no, you never get me to say that. But I, yeah, I, I, I get you guys. I would never... I would never argue, but I, but I tell I tell people, I told Norm Geister when he was still alive. I've told other people, um, I think the resurrection is a greater miracle than creation, and and the reason I think it is, somebody could say, well, golly, are you kidding me? Everything versus one event. Well, here's the difference: that one event, the resurrection, it's not the creation; it's a new creation. What Jesus is is a creation that can't be destroyed, lives forever, invites other people into the same reality. Now, what's more incredible? I'll just say it in a sentence. What's more incredible, Earth's creation or heaven? Amen. And then that's your answer. The answer is I think the resurrection is the greatest miracle there is. But you guys are right. Again, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said the two hallmarks of atheism are no God and no afterlife. And what do we have here? If Hugh Ross is right with intelligent design and what's been happening with astrophysicists, you might have a god. And if Gary Habermas is right and you got some evidence for NDEs, 300 cases, and there's an afterlife, guess what? We got the two main pillars. Now we have the guys coming in and going, hey, into that little god and afterlife scenario, let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And we call that a worldview. Now you're getting the whole picture centered on this man who's been raised. I think. People can get mad at you. They can be very frustrated. In the early church, they tried to stone people who did that. But instead of stoning and getting angry, try to disprove it. Wow, thank you uh, so much for that that answer. Uh, I love talking about NDEs. It's a very interesting topic. Well, they are. And, and you know, like you said, the earlier question, 
what do we do? We have historical data, but what about others? When you're doing ID and, and NDEs, what they have in common is that they're both scientific. You make a lot of people mad when you say that, but the data are scientific. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Dr. Habermas, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, we just want to uh, leave you with one more question. And uh, I've, I've seen this brought up more recently. It seems like to be a popular um, thing that skeptics are saying. Is there evidence of resurrection of a messiah in other religions? Like, is the res- resurrection of a messiah unique to Christianity? Yeah, now I've, I, I won't be able to send you to a particular... I've done this about three or four times in publications, so you can find them. I published one of them in the Christian Research Journal. You can find that online. I just did it... Um, well, who'd I do it for? <laughs> this is horrible. I write these things, I send them off, and then I forget who publishes them. <laughs> but um, I, the last time I did this, I, I listed eight things that were utterly unique in Jesus' life and ministry that has not been duplicated in any other religion. And, and I have an article on my website called Resurrection Claims in Non-Christian Religions. And it investigates other founders. Now, when you think about them, who, who would be the candidates? I mean, Buddha, according to the earliest uh, sources over by China, uh, the earliest things on Buddha, uh, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Taoism, and Confucius, in the earliest data we have, which is not very early, by the way, it's hundreds of years after these people lived, but in the earliest data we have, they were naturalists. They didn't believe in God. At least they didn't believe in a creator God. And so, now later, supernatural things came up, but we're talking 500 years later, supernatural things work into the literature. So so get them out of the picture. They didn't claim to be God. They don't even teach God. We know that Zoroaster, Muhammad, uh, David, uh, Daniel, um, Moses, they all claim to be prophets, or other people claim that they were prophets. None of them claim to be the Son of God. That's the one unforgivable sin in Islam, is to compare anyone or anything to Allah. Okay, so Jesus comes along, claims to be deity. That's why I said that those two claims are the most radical things anybody could say. Um, I'm deity, and secondly, what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. Uh, prophets point to things. They don't say it's all about me. And these these things are very, these teachings are very, very radical. And they all come together in Jesus. Do you, do you guys know, when I went to grad school in the early 70s, if you said you believed Jesus was a miracle worker, they probably know you're conservative Catholic or you're an evangelical. Today, I've heard critics say, critical scholars say, that 100% of critical scholars who know the field think that Jesus healed and, you know, did what we would call the, the same events recorded in the Gospels, whatever you want to call those. He did those things. People walked away healed. And they say he did those things. Okay. Edwin Yamauchi just recently retired from University of Miami of Ohio as uh, an ancient historian, he said Jesus is the only person in history who has miracles reported of him within a generation. Only one. When you start putting all these things together, let's put the Shroud of Turin in there, too. Talk about science. I'm not saying the Shroud has to be the burial garment of Jesus, but it deserves to be discussed. And you put all these things together, history, science, it all points to Jesus being utterly unique. And once again, it's like all roads lead to Rome. Well, all roads lead to Jesus this time. And again, you're back to worldview, verified worldview, 
And I think that's the, the worldview that Christians are happy to preach about. They don't have to know all these things. The average Christian doesn't have to know all this. But it's true whether they know how to explain the data or not. That's just that's just Christianity. That's why it's the number one, I think, the largest religion in the world, because it brings so many things to the table that can be investigated and shown to be true. That's such, such an awesome answer. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I know you mentioned your website, but you didn't tell us what it is. If if uh, our listeners wanted to know more about you, where could they find more information about you? Well, I have a YouTube channel going up, so stay tuned for that. In fact, I, in the last four weeks, I've done 40 little short, uh, I don't know, like four to seven minute lectures that are populating that site. So be looking for a YouTube channel very quickly. But my website is GaryHabermas.com, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, sort of one word, GaryHabermas.com. And there's, oh, I don't know, there's dozens and dozens of items people can download and uh, look at, and nothing's for sale on my website. I do that on purpose, so it's just for the purpose of ministry. I think appreciate you asking that because things that back up every single thing I've said here, uh, Jesus' miracles, uh, the resurrection in particular, near-death experiences, how to handle doubt, a lot of that. Uh, in fact, two of my three books on doubt are on the website free. They can be opened and read. And my doctoral dissertation on the resurrection done at the State University on the website. So, GaryHaberbass.com. I really appreciate you being on the show. You're, you're a hero of all of ours. We really appreciate all the work that you've done over the years to prove the resurrection of Christ did happen, and, and it's really an honor to have you on the show today. Guys, I enjoyed it. You, you, it this is, so here's an example of what we were talking about earlier. This, the show came from you asking good questions. If the questions had meandered and were hard to answer, and <laughs> listen, I've been on shows where I'd have to say to the talk show host things like, well, okay, let me first correct something in your question, you know, and then that's a, that's a wrong foot to get off on. But you guys, right. I, I, I love the way you went after the naturalistic theories. You didn't do it. Textbook-wise, you did it more like what an objector would say in a taxi or on a university campus. Uh, I love the way you answer the questions, and I guess you could tell I was kind of fired up. I'm excited about the material. You know why? I went through a long, long, long period of doubt. In fact, at one point, I thought I may have already crossed the line into Buddhism. That's a long story. But... Uh, I, the Lord, you know, saw me through this, and I'm just eternally grateful. Yeah, well, I've got it. It's in print. I've told the story before, but some well, on my website, I uh, there is a testimony there. Somebody brought me on and asked me to do that, so I did this thing about uh, you know coming through doubt to the Lord, so people can find that. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Habermas, thanks again for being on the show. Stay safe out there with all the coronavirus going around. Yeah. And really? uh, and thanks again. You're yeah, welcome, thank guys. you so much. It's a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, thank you, Doctor. Thank you.